Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today on the podcast, we have Barb Cook. Barb is a neurodivergent author, speaker, and advocate, best known as founder of Spectrum Women magazine and leading editor and co-author of the book Spectrum Women, Walking to the Beat of Autism. Diagnosed with ADHD, autism, and phonological dyslexia at the age of 40, 13 years ago, Barb now works in her own practice, the Neurodiversity Hub in Gympie, as a developmental educator, integrative nutritionist, and a neurodiversity employment consultant for neurodivergent adults. Okay, listeners, so today we are super excited to have a legend in the podcast with us. Today we have Barb Cook joining us. Welcome, Barb. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, Yeah, I've been a big fan of Barb's and all the books and magazines and things that she's been involved in. I've followed her for a while. So, yeah, very excited to have you on. But let's get started. And we're going to ask you to tell us about you and your journey to becoming an autistic, ADHD and dyslexic advocate. This could be a very long story. (laughs) There's a lot that's happened uh, for me to get to this point. So for me, I was diagnosed back in 2009 uh, with um, autism, ADHD and dyslexia. Uh, Back then, I was diagnosed as Asperger's and then upgraded later on. Upgraded. (laughs) Upgraded. That's an interesting term. I might use that later. Upgraded to autism. I love that. Upgraded to autism. Yeah, indeed. And so from that journey, when I was first uh, looking at about myself, I found there wasn't a lot of literature on autism and women. So there was only a couple of books that were around. There was Leanne Holiday-Wiley, and I think there was a couple of other advocates, Jennifer O'Toole. A lot of them were in the US as well that I uh, found at that particular point. And in Australia, there was Jen Perkis, who was one of the very first people and books that I actually read about autism and understanding myself. And from there, I thought to myself, okay, where where are the autistic women out there? How do I connect with these people? So I then started on this journey of searching social media frantically, see what see who was out there and sort of connecting with people. And I thought, all right, okay. I then went on a mission of a lot of advocacy work. So lots of connecting with people, different support groups I got involved in. And it eventually grew into um, where I wanted to do more. And this is where we came about 
um, many years ago, I was doing an online publication for a short time. I got burnt out. I actually stepped away from what I was doing in the work in, in autism because I got very overwhelmed as well because I was still learning about myself and learning my limits, which I hadn't actually learned that I still could not do as much as what I was doing at that point and getting burnt out. And so I took a bit of a break and then came back and talked with a couple of other women, autistic women at that point and said, we really need something like an online platform where we can put our voices out there. So from that conversation, Spectrum Women uh, evolved, the Spectrum Women Online magazine evolved. And so there was a group of us, we'd have conversations all the time. What should we write about? Who can we get people writing? You know, we wanted to get our lived experience out there because there's lots of medical stuff, as you know, but how about, you know, hearing from our own voices? And this was what, uh, got us into that and then it came a year later I think it was because it was 2016 when that first launched in 2017 we're having a conversation coming up to autistic pride day and I said look you know we've got so many great things that we we talk about and we um, why don't we actually put this all together in a book and everyone went, yes great idea so I wrote off to Jessica Kingsley herself a Jessica Kingsley publisher when she was still there owning it and said give her the idea 24 hours later we had a contract I didn't actually expect it that quick and I went, oh, all right, it's going to happen. And so that was the mission that took us over a year to bring that and bring that together, which came out in 2018. And that was such an epic journey doing that as well. I've never realised, like, when you do your first book, usually you think of you're going to write it yourself or with someone else. There was 15 of us involved and I thought, what am I doing for my first book? But it was an amazing journey. And as you know, Spectrum Women book, even still now, is very, very popular. Lots of information people have gathered from that. And we wanted to bring together, again, that lived experience along with the clinical experience of Dr. Michelle Garnett, who we invited to um, support what we were saying, giving her advice and insights from that clinical perspective, which was absolutely fantastic. And so from there, while I was doing that, I was actually living in a caravan at that point in a paddock. <laughs> while we were trying to do this book. And then I thought to myself, oh, I need to go and do study. Um, by the way, I'm highly driven to workaholic, don't sleep. And I thought, I need something else to do as this was winding up. And I then Yeah, why decided, not? Add to your plate. Just I add know. more. I kept adding more. Yeah, it's also the ADHD thing. Oh, look, shiny. I need to do that as well. Yeah. So it's like, I need more things here. And so I then went and um, enrolled into a Master of Autism. And so I did that. And in 2019, I've got my uh, Master of Autism degree. And I also did a, uh, a diploma in nutrition at the same time as well, because I'm highly interested in that area of the whole well-being of autistic women as well. I wanted to bring that into it too. And from there, once I got qualified, I then became registered as a developmental educator. And quite literally, it felt like all the doors opened for me as well. I then hop had opportunities. My first job once I was um, registered was working at Minds and Hearts Clinic in Brisbane uh, with Tony Upwood and Michelle Garnett. That was brilliant. So from there, it's just continually grown to where I am today, working in my own practice. I never would have thought that five years ago, even five years ago, that all of these things would come to this. But it's been a fantastic journey in the context of I absolutely love the work that I do. I love working with other autistic and neurodivergent clients as well. It's such a highly rewarding and enriching uh, job. I, well, I wouldn't even call it a job. It's just, it's the best thing I wake up to each day being involved in this. Well, it sounds like from what you said that it's almost, you know, the perfect marriage of 
all of the individual elements of your brain that make you and just as I'm watching you as you know you're talking about this and our listeners you know it's obviously an audio platform but um, you know if you could see Barb right now you are just so animated and come alive you know when you talk about this sort of passion Um, and I'm wondering what is your thoughts around the importance of neurodivergent individuals finding jobs that have that same spark and passion and joy. Do you see that as a necessary or as something that's a nice to have? I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, I've actually got two opinions on this. It is fantastic if you find what you're passionate about and if and working in that role. It's it's really rewarding as I was saying for myself finding what works for me. What you do want to be mindful of as well, though, is if you um, prior to what I used to, what I do now, I used to be a graphic designer for nearly twenty five years. So that was my area in technology and design and living in a computer in a cupboard and not talking to people. Was, I should have known back then that I <laughs> just because I didn't like that socialising with people. Leave me alone in here with my designs. I'm fine. Talk to the customers. No, don't. I don't want to do that. But. What I found, I was really passionate about art. I absolutely loved art. I wanted a career in art right from when I was five years old. This is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be actually a fashion designer originally, but people said, you're not going to make money out of doing that. It's really competitive. But I ended up in the graphic design industry. And what I found was really hard. I loved the work that I did, but I found it wasn't morally rewarding to me. I found it really draining. When you're working in an industry like this, it's very, you don't have the time. It's is uh, the time you're allocated to design something can be very short. Hey, come up with an idea, a logo or something creative in 30 minutes for me or an hour. This is really hard work to do because you're really taxing on that creativity and then you feel that you're not doing your best because you have, you're not allowed enough time to do these things. So it, it really culminates. And what got to the point for me where this is where it was leading up to me being burnt out and eventually diagnosed as well was the moral sense of what I was doing. I was designing uh, wonderful things for people that I would not ever recommend to, you know, my worst enemy, basically. You know, it could be like the dodgy plumber or something like that. And I was making them look good. And I knew inside for me, they they weren't good at what they were doing. I didn't like what they were doing. So, there was this really um, internalized feeling and it made me dread what I was doing and made me dislike what I was doing. And so, I ended up getting burnt out and then out, out of that industry. And even still now, I find it incredibly difficult just to draw So I lost all my passion for that creativity. Mm. If I could go back, I would have kept my art as my hobby or my interest outside of work. So for young people, it doesn't necessarily, you know, if you're starting out in your careers and myself and Yen Perkis are just finishing writing a book about intense interests and careers that'll come out next year. But when we're looking at that, it doesn't necessarily mean if you don't get into that career that's based around your interest, maybe consider a job that's not going to tax you mentally and keep your passion for when you're at home or when in your free time. You know, go and earn good money doing something that's not really hard to do. Say, work in a factory, say, for example, I've done that. Work in a bakery and I you know, packing boxes, a night bakery. I did that for a few years there at one point. You don't have to think. And then the spare time you have, you can spend all of your energy doing that and you have money to do that as well. So that's a really like a win-win there. So it really, you really have to evaluate about what, what that looks like and what that feels like. And you can do that throughout your lifetime as well. So if you've started out in an industry of an interest and you're feeling it's draining you, there's nothing to stop you. You don't have to stay there. You can then reevaluate, okay, I need to look at something else. What is going to work for 
for me. Mm, that's fantastic advice. And, you know, something that I think is so helpful given, you know, because I, I work with kind of younger kids, um, teens, exactly as you say, Barb, you know, often it's this sense of because I've got this such strong passion in this particular area, I really want to make that my job. And I love the way that you articulated there, how taxing it is for a neurodivergent person, particularly an autistic person, if there's not an ethical coherence yeah. with that, you know, if it doesn't feel like it's authentic and it's your truth, you know, and you're able to kind of connect more morally with what you're doing, particularly if it's a really strong interest, that can actually contribute to burnout. So I think that's absolutely stellar advice. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got to, you know, we need to assist our young people as well because, you know, people like myself, I'm getting, I'm, I'm older. My brain's not getting older. I still feel young as, but the body's sort of aging a bit. But there's a lot of experience that we can share other autistic leaders and advocates. We have lots of information we can young, share to the young people about this is what it looks like. You don't want to get into burnout. We've been there. We've done that. It's not fun and it's hard to recover from as well, which is, you know, we don't want to push ourselves. We may feel like when we're younger, yeah, we can keep pushing ourselves and pushing ourselves. It does eventually catch up with you. So, we need to get that balance of what is going to be really fulfilling and sustainable for us. Yeah, I totally agree. I think with burnout, prevention is always the best um, rather than cure. Unfortunately, it takes so long to recover from burnout. Another question I'd love to ask you, Barb, can you tell us about being a developmental educator? Because I feel like that's something that, you know, some of our listeners might not be familiar with, like what, what actually is a developmental educator and what do they do? Absolutely. Now, the developmental educator, we this is something we've all found really, really challenging to concept into a very small amount of words. Uh, if you say psychologist, OT, everybody knows what that means. Oh, you say developmental educator, the first thing people think of, you're a teacher. No, we're not teachers, but we educate people. We provide information to people. So for us, what we do, we were talking about this the other day, actually, myself and other developmental educators, we're pretty much um, the social justice warriors of disability is what we could conceptualise what we're doing. So we're about looking at not just, you know, with the individual, we work with the individual, but we look at what the environment what's going on out there. We look at like what employment, you know, businesses, we look at all of the aspects that may be holding an individual back and not succeeding or get, getting to their visions and goals that they want to do. So, we work alongside individuals um, in all different areas. So, this can, can be employment, this can be in schools. So, we work in schools, we can work in a lot of different areas. We work alongside psychologists, we work along other allied health members, but we look at things um, from the social model of disability, we're not the medical model. And so, so for us, it's a case of when you come and see us, it's not about therapy. Really, what we do is looking at what can we do to best support you in your everyday life. So that's probably about as short as I can squish it into. <laughs> Yeah, that, that sounds fantastic. And I think really useful for a lot of our listeners to know that that is actually an option that they can look to for support. That's a great point, Monique. It's kind of like psychologist meets social worker meets social justice, you know, and as you were talking, Barb, I was thinking it sounds like, and please correct me if, if uh, this is not correct, but it sounds like what you're really trying to do is figure out how can we actually make you and your environment a better fit? 
And a lot of the time that's about changing the environment or working, you know, within the external structures to support that person in the environment that they're in. Absolutely. Yeah. And we do a lot of that. And we also try and educate other people as well, how they can support people. So we work a lot, say, for example, with support workers as well um, in things like that. What is going to best support that individual? And also creating plans with a multidisciplinary team. What is going to best support that individual? Um, looking not at from, again, from that therapy, but looking at that environment, what is going to support that person? What does that person need us in terms of support needs? Let's get these things in place and actually understanding and working with that individual um, rather than telling that individual, this is what you should be doing. And where can people find developmental educators if they're interested in in getting one? Yep. Uh, our website, which is deai.com.au, we have a list on there of developmental educators. Not all of them are listed on there. Um, there is a lot in South Australia because that's where um, it originated from. We are expanding out. There's a few more now in Queensland, which is great, but we are spreading out around Australia. Um, and But that is ideally the best place to start to ha- is to have a look on there. The ones on there as well, we are registered. You do want to be sure when you seek out a developmental educator that they are registered with us as well because you can come across because we're not the same as like with psychology under APRA so a regulatory body we are in the process of working towards that but people can say they're a developmental educator and not registered with us we are still tracking down and trying to pull that up and that has actually happened within the NDIS as well um, that we've had discussions with them going you can't say to people they can be a developmental educator if they're not registered with us. Mm, mm, that's a great point. So what we'll do is we'll link that in the show notes to the episode. So if any listeners are wanting to uh, check that out, just check the show notes um, and we'll have a link to that. Our next question is really about advocacy in general. And this is a big question, but we're really wanting to hear your take on it. Um, What is advocacy? And how would you kind of conceptualize that? That is a massive concept. It's huge. It depends <laughs> on what area we're looking at advocacy. Uh, something I'm really... Uh, a strong advocate, there you go, I'm advocating, I'm talking about, is I want to encourage people about self-advocacy. So being able to determine, so your self-determination, so you can advocate for yourself about what your needs and supports are. That is a huge thing for me because quite often many people um, find it very difficult to speak up and get their supports or their needs met. And again, this is actually something that developmental educators really a strong area that we're uh, working is helping that person understand what their support needs are. So, for example, if someone has just been recently diagnosed, um, they may not have known what has worked for them in the past. We may look at, okay, what environment, so if you're in an education environment, what support needs do you want? What does that look like? You can say um, you may need certain equipment to help you with um, your studies. So you may want to record notes. You know, look at something like that because you may find it difficult to write down notes. It could be because your working memory might find it difficult to listen to the information. So you want to record that information. Or you may find it difficult to write down notes because of handwriting. There can be two different things that are going on here. If you don't know specifically what it is that you're finding challenging, it's hard for you to advocate exactly what it is and why you need these particular supports. So when you know yourself well, so this 
this is why we try and educate people. Let's look at things in detail. What is it that you're finding you're struggling with? We then know what we can advocate for and say exactly what that is to the, um, the other person as well. And then when you do that, that also builds your self-confidence. I know what I want. I know what I need is going to best support me. So for, say, example, in situations where you get discriminated against or you're not getting your support needs met, you can then say, well, no, I know what this is. You do need to um, support me in these areas. So it makes you more confident in yourself rather than listening to other people that may say to you, oh, no, you don't need that. Um, Because it happens really easier with autistic people. We're quite often afraid of conflict or afraid to speak up, afraid to say, know because we're worried about what the other person's going to say you know because we've come from these backgrounds that may be quite traumatic or we may experience bullying we've may had negative connotations put onto us say for example with ADHD you're lazy you could do this you can try harder there's all these different things that put onto us we then become very afraid to speak up for ourselves so when we start looking at knowing ourselves it does build that confidence because you then don't doubt yourself I know exactly what it is. When other people doubt and you're like, oh, I'll question myself. And then the overthinking comes in and it makes it very difficult. So this is where it's really important to know who you are so you can do that advocating. And then when you look at advocating in a broader sense, like us, you know, um, advocates that are out there, we look in this context of going, we're looking at it in a bigger um, sort of context. We have an idea of what autistic and neurodivergent people need and supports. So we are there trying to put information out there to the wider uh, population to advocate for our community, to explain this is the support needs we have. This is um, how we may do different things, get people and businesses to understand. So this then takes it a different level. It's like parents. Parents advocate for their children as well. They know their children well. They're going to go into the schools. This is what, you know, this is my child needs. So it is a huge thing. Advocacy is incredibly important because we all need to speak up, not just for ourselves, but we're speaking up for other people as well when we do these things. Mm, yeah, I, that's a great um, definition and explanation of that. And a couple things there, you know, I loved um, when you're talking about self-advocacy, it's almost that double prong, right? You have to know um, what it is that you're having difficulty with and why. And then the second prong of being able to articulate that to someone else and communicate that to someone else. And that's where I think that the broader level community-based advocacy comes in too there, because I feel like um, for a lot of people, having the language to know how to then say, actually, this is what's happening for me and this is why I need this thing and this is what I need. And that's where I think it's kind of all of these things are interrelated, right? You know, you need that community-based advocacy to give the language and change the culture and provide that systematic level of awareness. And then you've got the individual needing to feel through that more empowered, more aware of themselves and more able to articulate their own needs. Yeah, absolutely. And also with, you know, um, autistic and neurodivergent-led organisations, they bring together a lot of information, which is also great too. So people can go and refer to these different organisations or different places going, here's the information. This is not just from my own personal perspective. Here is the information you can read about um, why we need supports, what you can actually do, say, as a business or an employer to support us um, or in education. These are the things that we need in terms of support. And as you know, this um, interesting it just made me think of in terms of advocacy language as you were saying but as in language of it is identity 
So we've seen the change and shift within research now taking it on board rather than saying with autism, autistic people is changing there. So for, for us continually speaking up and having our voice heard, it, these things are changing in a lot of different areas well, and quite significant areas. I, I really agree. And I think uh, a lot of advocates do work to change things in a systemic way. You know, whether it's, you know, whatever different systems you're interacting with, whether it's the education system, the political system, the health system, the mental health system, I think advocates have a really important role in representing different communities so that they can have their voices heard and systemic change happens. And it takes time, um, but often things build in a momentum and the wave comes. And I really think that we're at kind of like the peak of a wave that's happening around neurodiversity and disability. And um, a lot of advocates have put in years and years of work to help get us to this point, which is really great. And we need to acknowledge that. Absolutely. There has been a lot of work that's been going on for many, many years to get to this point. It's not something that's just happened over the last couple of years. Um, some people may seem to think, you know, like if, if you go onto some of the social media platforms and certain businesses out there going, oh, neurodiversity and stuff like that. Yes, you're looking at it as in a monetizing sense. You're not actually supporting people. It's like you're not really embracing what this is about and understanding it. So we still do have a long way to go. But again, it all starts from each one of us as having the opportunity to speak up and say what we need. It culminates and then we get together and be able to get our voice, a collective voice heard. So, Bob, tell us, what is a specific example of an autistic ADHD advocate um, doing advocacy work? If we look at it in the context of an individual, I can't go back to right down to grassroots, understanding yourself, knowing what you want to advocate for. So, for example, in the workplace, I do a lot of stuff around the workplace too as well. Employment's really important to me. You may be in a workplace that has a bit of a toxic environment or it's not, or you see someone that's, you know, say you may have been subjected to something that is discriminatory or in the workplace. When we speak up against that and know what our rights are, and again, this comes under that discrimination and being able to advocate for ourselves, we're not just advocating for us at that particular point. We could be advocating for people that follow us as well. Because I often hear this in um, when I've done uh, certain workshops, people say to me, why is it us that have to do all the advocating? Why do these people, no, it doesn't organisation, why doesn't business actually just do this stuff without us keep asking all the time? Unfortunately, we're still in the phase of where they're still not a huge amount of understanding as much as we like out there in business, especially small business. Bigger business are picking up on quicker. So things like Westpac, you know, and ANZ Bank, all of those sort of things. But smaller business still has a little knowledge, I, I feel, in some respects. So we still need to be able to speak up for what our needs are and educate people about what being autistic is, ADHD, neurodivergence, what these things are to, to our employers or our co-workers as well. Because once we do that, they're gaining knowledge for other people that may come work in the workplace because I'm pretty sure that we're not going to be the only person that's going to be neurodivergent in that workplace. There will be other people that may not have disclosed. There may be other people that come in afterwards as well. So we're making change by just getting changes for ourselves, for other people that are coming in there as well. So this is where that advocacy um, 
uh, in action actually looks like. It's us speaking for ourselves, which then also is advocating for potentially other people within that workplace or who follow us. And what about a specific example of advocacy on a broader level? Like what's something maybe you or other advocates within Australia have worked on? Yeah, because I think it's just interesting for people to hear like what, yeah, what do advocates do? Do they attend um, like lectures or talks or, you know, like what you're doing right now or um, be part of certain campaigns? Yes, there is a lot of different things advocates involved in. So for me, I'm involved in a research project that's in the US, a five-year research project, which is on looking at suicide prevention methods for um, young autistic adults between the ages of 14 and 25. So it's a huge research project. We're part of a a council. We've got an autistic community council within this. So, what we're doing in this council is looking at all of the documentation, the wording, even the questions that they're going to ask the participants. um, And because this is highly sensitive and highly triggering triggering information, but we are the ones as the autistic um, voice in these projects is looking at how this is going to impact the participants from our perspective. So, there's been some massive changes just in that from the typical standardized questions is quite it's quite frightening when we looked at these questions around this topic because they were so triggering on their own I said you can't ask them this particular way to an autistic person and some of them were quite open-ended so that made it even more challenging for someone so it's we were speaking up and giving our voices and they're listening to this which is fantastic on a really big scale there as well so this is where um, advocating is incredibly important having their voices included advocates can also write you know journals blogs as this is a, a way we can get our information out like the spectrum women online platform the magazine that is where you can advocate as well about your own experiences and all the different experiences as well because we all do have different experiences we're not all the same we can you know write books there's a lot of people out there writing memoirs these are fantastic there's so many great books out there i mean even chloe hayden's just put her new book out as well and there is just so much great literature. So advocating can be done in the written form. So you like our publisher, Jessica Kingsley Publisher, they're great for getting our voices out there. So this helping us advocate in a different in a different way like that. Other things, getting on podcasts, getting involved in panel discussion. Panel discussions is actually a really good way if you want to get into advocacy because you're not got the spotlight on you. So if you've got a group of people and you're sitting there talking on a panel, if you feel like you're not quite comfortable answering that question, there will usually be someone else that will want to answer that for you. But if you get a whole bunch of, and I've had this, a whole bunch of people that are really confident want to say something, it's really hard to get a word in. And I'm like, it's me, me, I want to say something. So it's it's a really good icebreaker if you want to get into having, you know, into that type of platform. But if speaking is not your thing, and that might certainly wasn't mine, I would never have dreamed of be speaking. And now you can't shut me up. I just like, here, have all this information. Um, but it is, you know, writing is a good way of getting the voices heard out there. There's lots of fantastic blogs, as we know, that put information out there. There's lots of different ways like that. Even advocating within your local community. You may want to, um, if you've got a certain organisation that you support that around autistic and neurodivergent people, there may be, say, an expo on in your town or a fair. You could go, if you feel comfortable, you could get a group of you together and then go, this is what neurodiversity is about. This is what being neurodivergent is about. Give out information to people. There's all different ways. This is a project I did. Yeah, you get involved in lots of projects. This is how you sort of like get into this sort of thing. And I got involved in a project um, for creating a very big website and writing content for it. So again, it's getting that 
autistic voice involved into that um, project in through a very um, quite well-known site and information, which has now ended up having flyers put into pretty much every doctor's surgery about what autism is and where you can find information. So these are all really important things. Yeah, there's lots of different ways. Even if you go and be, say, for research, if you're a participant, getting involved in research that way, you're giving your voice, you're giving your opinion as well about what's going on. And there's a few autistic research projects out there as well. I would look for them over um, other more sciencey, you know, medical types. There is a lot of good autistic-led research projects out there. Even, you know, signing petitions or starting petitions is a great way of doing advocacy work as well. Absolutely. Uh, another one too, if you want to get actually in advocacy, is the self-advocacy net Asan self-advocacy network get involved with them as well because they're um in australia us and i'm trying to think where else there's a couple other places new zealand uh that's a great way because it's all autistic led as well so you're getting your voice as a group yeah fantastic so many really specific and actionable examples there and i guess just to tie that to what you were saying earlier around you know the more kind of individual based advocacy all the different ways that you can be an advocate it really doesn't matter what you're comfortable doing or where you know you see your place there's a place for you to advocate. And even if it's just having a conversation with a work colleague, you know, I loved what you said before about how it's often bigger than the individual moment. It's about paving the way or creating an easier path for the people who come behind you. And there's a really beautiful quote about um, feminism and the suffragette movement. And I can never remember who says quotes, but I just remember the quotes. Um, But it's so lovely. And it's basically like, um, I um, climb the mountain as far as I can so that the women who stand behind me can see further. And it kind of gives me tingles every time I think about it because it's this beautiful, you know, we just move forward as far as we can and as far as we are capable of doing. And that's different depending on the person and everyone has a different gift or strength or something to bring to an advocacy movement. And that's all you have to do. And that means that you've advanced that kind of view for the person behind you a little bit further. So, yeah, I loved all those very specific examples. I think they're great. Absolutely. And it made me think too what you were just saying then as well is you can also look at the intersectionality as well. So it's not just around the neurodivergence. There may be also cultural, um, you can bring this into it as well. There's a lot of different areas that you can look at what you're passionate about specifically to you. So, Barb, it sounds like um, actually knowing what your rights are, um, you know, legally what your general rights are is pretty important for advocating for yourself and for others. And I feel like a lot of people don't actually know what their rights are within the Australian context um, in terms of like the Disability Discrimination Act and what your rights are regarding things like education, employment, your public life, the healthcare system. I I think that's a really important first step to know. So you, you kind of know you're backed by, I guess, a system and your rights are protected. Can you tell us a little bit about that to kind of help uh, anyone that's listening who is thinking about self-advocating? Yeah, of course. Uh 
With the Disability Act, that covers pretty much a lot of aspects of your life. A lot of people think oh, it's just in education or it's just in um, employment. It covers a lot of things. So let's take a look at education to start with. Your rights into getting a fair and equal opportunity um, in education as other people. It doesn't mean that you're all going to have the same education. You're going to have that tailored to what is your needs. So this is where that comes in there. If you are all getting the same equal, you know, it's the same education, you still are being discriminated against in that respect. So it's looking at it in that context of what is going to work for you and having the modifications or adaptations that um, best suit you as well. Uh, also with education, it's, it's not just the learning, it's also in um, your enrolment. It's also working with disability part that's within, the, say, a university. It's about also if you wanted to make complaints, it's also about feedback. It's also about the student services. There's all different aspects that um, Discrimination Act will cover in that. When it comes out of that, it then goes into employment. So you have your equal opportunities to when you're doing your interview. Um, also, when you're applying for a job as well, people can get discriminated. Um, so that you do have a right there as well in terms of having that fair opportunity to have, say, your resume seen or being, you know, getting to that interview process. So, for, for example, say if you saw a job application and it's specified that they only wanted, we didn't want people with a disability applying for that. So, you can imagine, this is quite obvious, that's discrimination. So, you can't discriminate against people applying for jobs. But also is when you're in the workplace, what what is reasonable supports for you as well? Usually with a job, when you apply for one, you should be given, and this is usually in bigger organisations, is their policy procedures. This should document what the process is about discrimination, harassment, bullying, all of that sort of stuff should be in that document and should highlight what's the protocol and what's the measures that you need to follow. I always say to people, make sure you read these things because that gives you that insight right at the beginning when you start your work because if, unfortunately, it does happen, it's not often, but it, it can happen. If you know this, you then know what's the steps to take. I go and see HR, I go and see management. If I'm not getting any success or getting uh, recourse from what I'm doing with these people, you then can go and seek outside services. And there is outside services that also support you with that. And I can't think who there is, but there is a particular one that's an, um, an autistic lawyer that looks at discrimination in the workplace um, and does mediations. But again, it's not just work and education, it's also out in the community. So going to the shopping centre, going on holiday, going to a cafe or a restaurant, this is where even discrimination can, can happen here. So it's a case of knowing that you are treated with respect, um, treated with some sort of supports or needs that you have in a particular place. So, for example, this is, I'm trying to give some really obvious ones. If you went to a restaurant and you have um, had food allergies, say for a nut allergy, um, if they gave and come and give you food, it can be potentially life-threatening. It's they're not listening to what your support needs are and things like that. So it's it's not in that sense, it's not necessarily discrimination, but it's it's highly dangerous. Um, but it, it's a case of making sure that that person is respected. So, this is, it comes down to respect of the other person as well. So, if you're not feeling respected, you want to look at that more, what is going on for you too. And it also go, goes into things like when you go to Centrelink and things like that, um, how are you being treated? Are you being treated fairly? Are you being listened to? Are you being understood by, and are they providing accommodations that you need? Government services, there is a lot of areas. Again, hospitals, when you go there, what supports am I getting? Am I getting the right treatment? There is all different areas and aspects of our life. And to find out this information as well, when you're looking in general 
it's it's really hard to find these particular things. But there is um, on the government websites there is specific. So if you Google just this uh, Discrimination Act, what is it, 1994 or 2002? We can't remember which one it is. Um, but if you look that up, that'll take you to the government website and it will show you all of the information on different sectors. So if you are in a position where you um, you're finding that you are being discriminated against, you can look at what that act covers and then it should tell you where you can go for your next steps as well and getting um, support. That's really helpful information to know. And I guess kind of a good segue to our next question, which is what do you find are some of the barriers or some of the things that can stop people from self-advocating for themselves? Like say across some of the contexts that you mentioned, like work context, education context, social, functional context. Are there any kind of key things that you see come up a lot? as kind of blocks or barriers? One of the biggest barriers, especially in employment, is there's always a communication breakdown. That's always the number one thing. So it comes down to when mediation is brought in, because I've been brought in for mediation before, it's um, a distinct communication breakdown. So, for example, an, an autistic employee has got to a point of burnout, is not going well, may be struggling in the workplace, may have, you know, become blunt or become more intense or struggling because they themselves are not coping. And then when you get to that point, it's very hard to advocate. So, you've got to realise too how you're feeling as well can make it challenging to advocate for yourself. As we know, when we're sort of like verging on a meltdown or we're highly overwhelmed, it's really hard to be very nice and polite. Oh, can I please have this? It's a case, I need this because I'm not coping. Can you do this? And people take offence, but we're not meaning that. And and the thing is, just to sort of interrupt quickly there, the thing yeah. is, that's true for everyone. And I yeah. think the thing that um, neurotypical people can struggle with in that sense, like say in a work context where, you know, as you said in your example, you're already at burnout point, is the thing that a neurotypical person struggles with is they don't think that it's rational to have that level of a response to what's going on. But the autistic experience, of course, is that it is rational. I've been holding my shit together for, you know, however long. And now I'm at a point where I can't articulate myself properly. I'm really, um, I don't have a lot of patience. I'm easily triggered. And that's just a normal part of a human being having a stress response. It's just about kind of destigmatizing um, what, you know, in inverted commas should create that level of a stress response in someone. Yeah, absolutely. And as you were saying, you know, when they get to that point, and this is the unfortunate thing, this goes back to that self-determination as well. Um, The individual didn't know how to convey it in the earlier stages or recognise that they were getting into the keep doing the same things that were adding to that burnout, found it when they get to that point is how do I get to advocate this and get this across clearly? And then so I get on the other side from the employer is going, well, they're just being difficult. They couldn't do this. I've seen them do this before. So you like, you know, I'm like going, try and reframe it to the employer. Um, look at it differently. It's they're not being offensive to you. They are not coping. They need you to listen and understand. We need to be able to create some sort of framework here where we can all get together and talk about things. Yes, I understand they have obligations. They have to do certain things in their job role. But at this particular point, this is not going to work well if you keep putting them under pressure and things like this. We need to, what can we do to scale this back to support them and then 
get them into a place where they can do the job really, really well and get, the, you know, get that communication happening between them. And this mediation usually comes into that point. It's usually when it, the person is really, really overwhelmed and burnt out. It's not earlier in the piece. Just thinking of another case where I did, it was in an office environment. I went to assess the office environment they were in and I just looked at it and I thought, how have you lasted working in this environment as long as you have? It was open plan office hugely bright fluorescent lighting next to a window, confined corner, whiteboards around them. It had every glare factor you could think of um, and people would bump on their table as they would pour past. Because they were getting more and more overwhelmed, they said, oh, we can supply you, we can provide you with a quiet room when you're feeling overwhelmed. But the quiet room was a glass room where everybody could see them in there. And I'm like, oh my God. And it's got cameras in there too. And I'm like, Oh, my God, that oh my sounds God. terrible. It was awful. I'm like, no wonder the employee's not coping. Oh, my goodness, how, how would you feel? And so you then have to reframe it into a neurotypical context of feeling, they're feeling very vulnerable and exposed. How would you feel it? Say, for example, you needed to go and do the bathroom. You wouldn't want glass doors and walls, would you? No, it makes you feel highly anxious and self-conscious. And, and also just that kind of not getting the underlying issue, which is rather than even if it was like a really amazing place to go and like it was a Zen garden or, you know, whatever, it still doesn't address the underlying fact that the work environment is not an appropriate fit for that person. And a lot of people struggle to have an understanding that their experience of the world and their, particularly from a sensory point of view, I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding um, different sensory experiences and realizing, you know, what that must be like. The example that I often give to, to um, parents when I'm going through a diagnostic process with kids is if you had had a really crappy day at work and you came home and you opened the door and you had death metal playing and strobe light flashing and then someone asks you to do another math sheet. Like, you know, exactly. like, how would you feel? And Oh, my God, I'd feel really, like, stressed and frazzled and overwhelmed. And, and I guess my question there is, do you find that that difficulty of businesses understanding the sensory needs of autistic uh, or neurodivergent employees is is an issue that you face a lot or not really? Yeah, we do. And this is where I always say be proactive as a neurodivergent individual self. Again, comes back to knowing yourself. So what are your sensory needs? Okay. If you're applying for a job, and I did I do this with a teens program I've been doing the last couple of years, is when you're going to look at a job while you're still finishing school. So you want an after school or weekend job, for example, and you've got the local fish and chip shop, junior junior assistant wanted to come and work at weekends. I say to them, okay, whatever your sensory, you know, you might you may have some sensory issues that go on there. Go into that fish and chip shop on a, say, a Friday night or a Saturday night. Go in there and order yourself, you know, a server chips and sit there and eat them. Watch what goes on. Set, feel the whole environment that you're going to be in. You're going to be on the other side of the counter if you're going to work there. Have a look at what's going to impact you sensory-wise. Is it going to be all the people talking at you really quickly? It might be some irate customers. The smells of the fat that they cook the fish and chips in. There can be, you know, what is the lighting in like in that place? There can be all sorts of sensory impact just in something like that, which you think, oh, this could be an easy job. And parents don't realise this either as well. Oh, yeah, they can go and get this after-school job. Go and work in Maccas. I've worked in Maccas when, um, when I was 18. <laughs> There's some good and bad points about Maccas. 
Maccas is very structured. I will say they've got a fantastic system in place about how they do things. But there is a lot of noise and there's a lot of hustle and bustle in these places. They have beepers and buzzers for every like 30 seconds of something. Drives you bonkers. So again, you need to be able to look at what what is that individual like? If they're sound sensitive, I'm sound sensitive, they're not going to cope. They might cope, say, for the first 30 minutes or the first hour uh, if they don't have any supports in place. So that person might think, all right, I want to work in this job because my friend's going to work in there. So I do want to try this and I want to work in this job. Okay, what are you going to do that's going to support you through that job? So it could be a case of I need to tell my employer I'm going to need a break every hour for 10 minutes away from noise. Is there a space I can go and do this? Or if I can hear properly with earpods in, you turn off the noise cancelling so much, you're still dimming down that noise a bit. If you can hear the customers talking to you, do that. Takes the edge off um, as well. So it's knowing what your um, your own supports you can implement as well. And then you can also ask the employer. So this is where I look at both ways. Know what you can implement yourself and then suggest to your employer, what can I do? I want to take these breaks every hour. Is that okay to do that so I can keep performing? Um, and then you know, once I finish work, when I go home, uh, say mum, dad will come and pick me up, take me home. You're going to say to mum and dad, I need 30 minutes to go and spend time in my chill room with something I really enjoy. So that could be sitting there with your weighted cat. My, my weighted cat file, it's not in my room, it's in my bedroom at the moment. But I have that, get that sensory input that calms me down, makes me feel good as well. So it's just putting these in place. And you can go and work in that environment. So again, know yourself. What can I put in place? What can I advocate to the employer? What can I advocate to my parents or the people I'm living with as well? Yeah, I think that's super important because what I'm hearing you say is that knowing yourself really is the number one thing in self-advocacy. And I can see how getting late diagnosed would make that difficult because if you don't know what your neurotype is, then you don't know why, like why you might be struggling with certain things and then you don't even know what to ask for. So that's why diagnosis is really important. So then you can find out the right information. You can find out the why, you can learn your own specific things that, you know, work for you or don't work for you. And then you can ask for those supports and needs, but there's all those steps before you can get to that point of asking. Exactly. And I agree with you. It's huge. I feel it's hugely important to get a diagnosis and to also do things like get a sensory profile done, um, have someone come and even assess your environment that you live in. If you feel, you know, if that's something within what you can do or assess where you're working at currently at that point. And as you say, late diagnosis, I, I know that personally, six weeks before my 40th birthday, I was, my whole past, I wish I could have changed pretty much everything I was doing. I was doing so much sensory overwhelm to myself every single day. I'm not, I'm really surprised that I got to that far. Um, and well, I didn't, I wasn't coping. I was just surviving pretty much. I was constantly overwhelmed. I was constantly stressed. And I just thought to myself, well, I'm just cranky all the time. But it, it wasn't, it, I didn't know what was going to work for me best. And I kept trying harder and harder, trying to do things and trying to look at other people, typical people, how they were doing things. And I could not understand why they could do it so easily. And I couldn't. And so there's that internalized, there was lots of years of internalized um, negative thinking about myself that took a very long time to shift away from and looking at shifting my life. And I find this as well with a lot of women that are diagnosed, say, for example, in their 40s and 50s. It's a case of I've been doing these things for so many years. I don't even know who I am as well. It gets to that point. I've been doing everything for everyone else. I've not done anything for me pretty much. And so for me, it's a case of 
This is where you start now. It's all about you. Okay, we, it will take a, quite a while because this is stuff that's been going on for 20, 30, 40 years that you've had put on you. We've got to try and relook at this, look what works for you, and, and then it's build up your confidence to be able to self-advocate and put these in place. And the diagnosis actually allows you to be able to go, yeah, I know this is what's going to work for you or not going to work for me. It takes a huge burden off yourself as well I found this is okay I have like I've been validated I know who I am now I know why these things uh, you know I'm not broken I'm not defective I just do things differently so it's it's a huge in a lot of sense relief as well yeah and it it means that it's okay to have needs because I think a lot of people that get caught up in masking and over performing and over functioning to kind of appear neurotypical or try to keep up with neurotypical people. Yeah, there's a lot of fear about letting that mask down and actually going, no, it's okay for me to ask for things. And if you're masking, you don't know who you are as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And we do. There is so many masks that we put on um, for different people and different situations. And that's where we get to that point is who am I? Because there is multiple situations we're doing this in. It's when you were saying that about as well, when we um, let down that mask, there is always that fear too of how people were going to respond as well. You may have friends or family that suddenly go, oh, we don't like this new person or we don't like what you're doing. You know, it, it's, it's to, Ideally is to explain them to the other people, I have been trying to keep this and do things your particular way. I'm trying to do things that work for me. Yes, you might find this uncomfortable, but if you can explain to them why you're doing this, they tend tend to get a bit of understanding. Um, I find this is where communication is always important is if even if it's not just verbal communication, it's just give them information. So again, go back to the organisations, have a read of some of this literature. This will give you an idea of what's been going on for me internally. You won't see this external externally. So what you're seeing now is I'm not internalising all of this stuff anymore. I'm doing it differently now. Mm, yeah, I find that that's... Um often a really big thing too, you know, because we've been talking a lot about the autistic experience tonight. And I feel like for ADHDers, they go through a similar thing, albeit in a different way, with that difficulty keeping up with a neurotypical executive functioning load or what's expected. And what I often find for late diagnosed uh, ADHD women is um, unpacking so much shame around I'm lazy or I'm just, I'm ditzy, or I'm stupid, feeling stupid, when actually, objectively, they're not. (laughs) Um, It's just executive functioning challenges. And something that I think a lot of um, people can struggle with a little bit is feeling like, oh, but I used to be able to manage, you know, some of this executive function load and now I can't. And explaining how, you know, executive functioning really um, doesn't work unless everything else in, in your office that is your brain, you know, is working. And as you get older, actually the executive function load of life increases, particularly if you've got kids, when you move up in your career, you know, other demands and stresses and things happen. And it's actually really normal to get to a point in your adult life. And actually, you know, if you're undiagnosed ADHD, just totally have complete executive function burnout and not be able to do it anymore. Because even though you could do it before, the question is, what did that cost you? 
And how, you know, how was that kind of level of masking impacting your sense of self? So I think while absolutely there can be so much internalized self-hatred and shame and all of that for autistic neurodivergent people, for neurodivergent ADHDers as well, I think it's just as pronounced and prevalent. What's your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with you 100 million percent on that um, with ADHD. Uh, I know that myself. <laughs> when you were saying about how how can I be ditzy and things like that, you reminded me of something I said to myself in my late teens because uh, academically I was really quite intelligent. I could do things. Um, but other things like really, really simple things I couldn't do and I, or I would stuff up and I would say to say to myself, you know, you're so smart, but you're also so stupid. And like, why is this? And so what I used to do is I say to people, it's because of my blonde hair. It's this is what I used to do. I used to even put myself down even more about it. Oh, this is my excuse. It's because of the color of my hair. It was awful. The things that I would do to just trying to cover up and I would beat myself up so much. Why can I not just do the simplest things? However, I could do the most complex, whatever other, you know, research or something like that. But everyday things were so incredibly difficult to do. And I still find that now. For me, my ADHD and executive functioning is always a challenge. I have tried pretty much every different, ever since I got diagnosed, every single different thing I could think of to try and help and assist me with executive functioning. But it's come to the point now is some things are never going to be easy for me to do. And I know that. And I've made peace with that. So some things will be challenging. Cleaning my bathroom is always challenging. I hate cleaning my bathroom. It's okay for me to pay someone else to do. I look at and reframe it. I'm giving someone else a job to do. I'm giving them money. I'm looking at it this way. But you're taking pressure off me as well. I need someone to do my admin because I know how bad I am at trying to do my own admin stuff. It's okay to do these things. But it's also coming to that realisation some things will never be quite you know, will never be easy for me to do. And it's also things about choices. Uh, I learned um, to reduce my choices as well because that was always overwhelming. With an ADHD brain, if you have lots of different choices, it becomes very overwhelming to do. So, for example, dinner, if I've got six different uh, food choices, you may get overwhelmed at just how do I even start to do this or choose one and then I'm just going to ring up and order a pizza. It's a lot easier. So this is what happens. And then there's also things of like moderation as well. It can be really hard. I know for myself, it's an all or nothing approach. I want everything. I want none of it. So there's no in between with me. I also have the black and white thinking. I have the all or nothing and the black and white thinking. So it's really, I have a challenging brain as, you know, with the ADHD and dyslexia. And how I like to look at my brain is um, my left side because I always look at my left side because that's where the intelligent and the stuff I look at. I think, all right, this is the autistic side. The right side is the ADHD side and the back is where my dyslexia are. So I've got Mr. Policeman on the left. I've got the party goer that wants to stay at a rave at five o'clock in the morning. Policeman's going, you need to go to bed. Party goer's going, no, I'm not going to party all night. Guy at the back, the dyslexia is confused as and has, what are you guys up to and carrying on about? This is my brain. So that's oh what it feels God, like. I love that. And that's pretty much what it feels like in here. And then I have like a brass band that wants to play at a level 11 and then I end up yelling at myself, can you please quieten it down? And people look at me, you all right? Yeah, it's okay. It's just my brain. So, but it is, it is very hard, you know, as well. And that burnout for ADHD, because we get that, that's as it's so true. You know, we get told we're lazy. We could do something. We can try harder. We know you can do better. They're awful things to say. And this often happens. I still see it now with the, um, with kids, you know, they're getting told this by teachers. It's, they take it on board. We're, we're highly sensitive. So this is where that rejection sensory dysphoria comes into it as well. 
all of this criticism, we take this on board and become very, very sensitive to any comments and things that we're doing because we do that too to ourselves. Yeah, and I think, you know, for a lot of neurodivergent um, kids, whether they're autistic or ADHD or some other flavour, the big theme that we often see is this kind of um, ego discordant um, sort of identity development where it feels like on the one hand, I'm this thing, but on the other hand, I'm this like totally opposite thing, right? Like your example of being quite bright, you know, in school, but then simple things not being able to do them or stuffing them up or finding them really challenging. And again, you know, when parents are wondering, oh, should we tell our teen or should we tell our child this is their diagnosis? My advice is obviously a resounding hell yes, Um, because kids, teens aren't stupid. No, People know when there's something different or something discordant about themselves. And as human beings, we're meaning makers. You know, the meaning that you developed for that what the hell's going on here is, oh, I have blonde hair. I'm ditzy. And you didn't probably believe that, but that was the meaning that you were like, oh, I'm supplying this and I'm going to make fun of myself and, you know, et cetera. Whereas when we say, no, no, the meaning is that you're neurodivergent, it alleviates so much shame, so much discordant feeling of identity and really prevents a lot of mental health issues before they begin is the heart. Oh, absolutely. I, I think, yeah, part of the, the self-advocacy is I think you have to have work towards self-acceptance, dropping the perfectionism as well. Because um, if you accept yourself and you accept your brain, you know what you need, then it's a lot easier to ask for help or ask for support. Whereas if you, if you find it really hard to accept yourself, the challenges, the good things, then yeah, it's really difficult. Mm, it is. Perfectionism is a really hard one to let go of too, though. That is something I've experienced for a lot of years too. And I still find it very hard um, to let go of that. Um, and it, it it's when you recognize it, again, as you said, with getting a diagnosis and understanding yourself, and when you go through, you know, all the question is, are you a perfectionist? Yes, I am. Um, you then start to realize, okay, this is why I'm a perfectionist. So you've got a reason as well. Yes, I still struggle with it, but I have a reason. So I understand why I do this. And so you then check in with yourself and you go, all right, um, this is what's going on. I might just need to take a break, walk away from what I'm doing. Let's reevaluate this. Do I really need to do this to this particular level? And quite often we don't need to. So we've talked a lot about self-advocacy. How can people be an ally to neurodivergent people and be an ally to neurodivergent people who are self-advocating for themselves? I could probably put that in one sentence. Listen to neurodivergent, autistic, ADHD, dyslexia voices. That's pretty much it. Read literature by us, read information that's done by us, read research that actually involves us and not about us, that it, you know, it is about talking to people with lived experience. This is how you can be an ally. Listen to what we, you know, our needs are. Listen to our preferences about how we, again, with language and things like that. Be respectful to understanding a little bit more about us. If possible, put aside what your preconceptions are as well, because there's still people out there thinking autism is Rayman. And I'm like, come on. (laughs) We've known about stuff for a long time now, but there is still this sort of stuff that's out there. People that say 
oh, you don't look autistic. That's the biggest insult, you know, people can say to us. It's about being respectful to that other person. So it is just taking the time to listen, to understand. If you listen to a person tell you tell them about yourselves, uh, you want to respect that and honour that, honor that because they're being open. They're being trusting to you as well. So you want to value that information. And as you learn about that, you may then find yourself in another situation where you can actually speak up for another neurodiversion person as well. You are then supporting them um, in a very big way when you have a you know some sort of knowledge about from our perspective not from what you perceive is what we would want there you go people it's literally that easy just listen it is it really isn't <laughs> difficult to do <laughs> come on yeah i know it's not hard <laughs> and i i would actually add a second step to that which is and believe <laughs> yes. Because I think, you know, a lot of people, um, if you're hearing about an experience that feels completely foreign to your own experience, sometimes um, as humans, we can have a lovely little trait of thinking, nah. Um, but, you know, hearing those autistic voices or neurodivergent voices in general and actually believing what yeah. people are saying. Yeah. Oh, yes. Definitely. And sign the petitions, you know, and if you're in the workplace or the school, back up the neurodivergent people who are advocating for themselves and go, I agree. Why aren't you providing X, Y, Z? Like actually back them up. Mm. You've just given me a really interesting, another thought on the advocacy and how to be an ally is also from a parental perspective, you've got a neurotypical child but they're in a classroom that's got autistic or neurodivergent people. We need to educate the children on how to also be good friends as well, support them as well in situations, call out things like bullying and teasing and all of this sort of stuff. We need allies as children as well. So parents can play a big role in this in educating their children too. So Barb, what strengths has your neurodivergence given you? It's given me the ability to have a huge amount of empathy and compassion for people. This is something I've found about myself. I've always been highly empathetic about the world, about what goes on, and there is a lot of neurodivergent people feel this. We feel like that we want to do so much good within our society because we are highly empathetic. We feel about different things. <clears throat> I feel that we can also, like for me, I also see different ways things can be done. So I found... Uh, because I am a little bit rebellious, so this is where my ADHD side comes in, I will then go and not agree with someone and then I will go and do the opposite of what someone will tell me to do. Uh, but I will also look at things differently and I feel like I can find different ways to do things. I find patterns and connections and things as well. So like for me, when I'm researching something or someone said something to me, the type of brain I have is always questioning and looking for something that may be connected to it. So for quite often, I feel like my brain is like a bit like Wikipedia sometimes because if someone says something, 
oh, I know something about that. And this is where I, oh, and I'll tell them something about that. And then it will go on to all sorts of things. And then I look up and I'm constantly learning. I love the brain that I have. I absolutely, yes, it might be challenging me at times. Sometimes I get really overwhelmed with it, but I would never change it in a million years. I absolutely love the brain that I have because it is so inquisitive. It's always learning. It's always wanting information, but it's also highly empathetic to other people and wanting to do the right things. So it's very justice. It's very, um, you know, doing good by people and good by um, other things in the planet, what we want to do as well. So this is the type of person that I am. Even as a small child, I felt like I, when I landed on this earth, I would always question about there's something bigger about this planet. What's going on? And people would say to me, like, you're way too ahead of your years in things like that. And I did feel like that. I just felt like I was just absorbing information to the planet without even reading things. So I had this constant feeling I needed to do something worthwhile um, in the work or whatever it was that I was doing was contributing to society. So I found with me, it was just, it is about that sense of morals, that justice, that empathy, um, and that constantly inquiring mind, which I absolutely love. So, Barb, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. What an amazing chat. Um, I particularly loved all the examples of things you provided for people. Um, I think that's going to be really, really helpful for a lot of our listeners. Well, I would love to plug Barb Cooks and Yen Perkis's new book, uh, The Autism and Neurodiversity Self-Advocacy Handbook, developing skills to determine your own future. Everything we've talked about today, it goes into further detail in the book and is a really awesome step-by-step guide to help you develop your own voice for self-advocacy. Um, so, yeah, love the book and love that we've been able to chat about some of that today. Oh, it's been fantastic. No, really, I really appreciate it. It's been really good too. Absolutely fantastic conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can head to our page on Patreon and buy us a coffee or a wine. Patreon subscribers receive access to a bunch of additional resources, as well as a monthly live Zoom hangout to ask us questions, chat about feelings, our favorite thing to talk about, and connect with other neurodivergent women. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle the Neurodivergent Woman podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.